The city's filled with blood, you know. <clears throat> I looked up from my book, and I saw there was an elderly man who had joined me at the bus stop. The city's a bit filled with blood, you know, the man repeated. Do you want to know how I know that? And without waiting for me to respond, the man launched into a dizzying tale about his time as a CIA agent, Navy SEAL, president of a foreign country, and a member of a secret society, all of which wove together over the next 10 to 20 minutes to somehow prove his claim that the ground that we were standing on was filled with blood. Finally, at the end of it, he asked me if I could spare for some change for him. A couple minutes later, I listened as he divulged that very same tale, or at least the beginning and the end of the tale were the same. Uh, the details in the middle were considerably different to another person who joined us at that bus stop. Discerning the heart and the motivations and the character of another person is hard. Especially when they just come up to you with a line like that at the beginning of a bus stop. Um, but even if we are able to discern truth from lying and, and we still don't know the context or the intention or the desires which drive our interactions with different people. And yet, yet when we're discerning someone's heart, it feels so much more important when they've asked us for help. As if by those few words of, of them asking us for something, for, for them to help us to help them with something, all of a sudden there's a whole lot more weight on understanding the motives, the intentions, their desires, whether they're telling the truth or whether they're lying. And in our scripture for today, we encounter a young man who's in dire need of help. Yet, yet he makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the people that he's asking for help from to trust him. He lies, he deceives, he puts others in danger just so he can save his own skin. He's desperate, and it seems like trouble follows wherever he goes. Perhaps you've encountered someone that fits this type of description. Maybe sometime you felt like this young man. How do we interact with someone who doesn't seem like they deserve our help? Who's given us no reason to trust them, no reason to uh, believe that their intentions and their motives and desires behind asking us for help are you know, on the up and up. What do we do? How do we help someone who doesn't necessarily deserve our help? And as you think about that question, I invite you to join me. Continuing on in our passage today, in the story of David. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 21, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And, and David said to Ahimelech, the priest, oh, the, the king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, um, 
Uh, let no one any, know anything of the matter of which I send you and, and with which I have charged you. And, and I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. And now then, uh, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered David, oh, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. Uh, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? And so the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doug, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then uh, have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For uh, I, have, I, I haven't brought either my sword or my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, Well, the sword of the Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped behind in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is none but, there is none but that here. And David said, Well, there's none like that. Give it to me. This guy's lying. I can see it all over his face. I just asked David, why is he alone? And he's trying to tell me that the king, the king, the one that we all know is trying to kill him, has sent him on a secret mission. And that secret mission is to such and such a place. Does he take me for a fool? But now he's asking me for food and for weapons. Clearly, he is, he is out of his mind. Doesn't he realize he's asking me, a priest, for food and weapons? I, I've been specifically singled out by God's law not to be able to have any land for my own to grow crops, nor am I going to be able to fight in a battle. So there's no reason for me to have any weapons. And yet he's asking me for both food and weapons. I rely on other people giving me food to survive. Not to mention, I don't know if he saw this guy, but one of Saul's top officials is just sitting right over there listening to everything we say. Without question, you can know exactly where he's going. Yet, yet, the law also states, right, Leviticus 25, 35, 37 through 38, well, that comes a lot later. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Well, I guess... I guess just as our ancestors were on an exodus away from a pharaoh who wanted to kill them, so also this guy seems to be on his sort of exodus. And, and God provided bread for them, so why not should God provide bread for him? All right, David, I've got holy bread here. But the law states that you have to be in that holy ritual state of holiness in order to eat our 
are your men that you're going to go meet up, meet up with in that state? Have they done the washings and the cleansings and the appropriate vows and taking all of these things to not just go from unclean to clean, but from clean to holy? Have they done the vows just like the Nazarites? Well, okay, yeah, if you say so. And you might as well take Goliath's swords while, while you're at it, since, I mean, you're the one who got it in the first place and dedicated it to the Lord. I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be returned to you. Hopefully nothing bad comes to me because of this. Hmm. This whole passage reads like one of those comedy movies that I honestly really hate and I cringe at them so much. Um, When you have the bumbling main character gets caught red-handed doing something and he's trying to bluff his way out of it and the writer has gone through painful lengths to make sure that we, the audience, know that he's bluffing and that these lies are really bad and they're barely holding together and yet the, the person who's challenging him is slowly being convinced and, and eventually lets him go. They're so embarrassing. I have a hard time even watching those and that's, that's exactly what it seems to be going on here. David is clearly lying and it... I'm pretty sure Ahimelech knows exactly what's going on. But he still helps David. Even though he's been lied to, he shows compassion to David in this perilous situation. Perilous both for David, because David's running away from certain death at this point, and for himself. Saul's not exactly the most sane person. Who knows what's going to happen? And while we know what's going to happen, we can keep reading on in the next chapter. Saul kills him. And all of the priests that are with him. Now David was lying. Clearly he was lying. And and when we read this, there's, there's a temptation when you read a Bible passage to think that everything they did was correct. That's exactly how we should do. We should emulate that. And I'm going to say, no, no, we shouldn't emulate David in this. We should not go to someone and lie to them for their help. But David, I mean, he had a good purpose in this. He's lying to try to protect Ahimelech so that Ahimelech couldn't be accused of conspiracy by the king, even though he was and found guilty and later killed by the king. That's Saul's fault, by the way, not David's, not Ahimelech's. Saul was, did not act rightly there. But Ahimelech helps him. He shows compassion to him. And not only that, not only does he show compassion for David, he also gives David that which God has provided. These bread, this bread of the presence, this was a portion that after it had been given to God, after it had been set forth for him, so then the priest could take a portion to be able to feed themselves. And yet he shares it with David saying, yeah, I do have something that I can share for you. And that sword, well, he had no use for it. Well, maybe he did later, but he had no use for it now. So sure, why not, David? Why don't you take it? God provided this through a great victory that he gave you. So then why not should he provide it for you now in your time of need? How do we help those who don't deserve it? Well, from the example that we are reading that Ahimelech did here to his credit, we do it with compassion And through God's provision. Now we don't know the reasons why someone asking us for help might lie or try to deceive us. 
and we can't control them. We can't control and make them tell us the truth. But we can control ourselves. And so how do we respond when someone is coming to us asking for help and we know, we know they're lying, we know they're trying to deceive us, or we know that they actually probably got themselves in this situation by doing something dumb already? Do we respond harshly? Are we vindictive? Do we judge them and let them face the consequences of their decisions? Or do we respond how Jesus responded to our need for help? Do we act out of the love that Jesus acted out of on our behalf? God provides the means to help others. We are called when those who are asking us for help, even if they may not deserve it, not only to act towards them in compassion because of the way that Jesus acted towards us, but also also to respond to them with the provision through which God has provided us. And as much as I love the tale of Robin Hood, who steals from the rich to give to the poor, God does not look kindly upon breaking his law in order to help those in need. The ends don't justify the means. Yet God, God also doesn't call us to, God also doesn't call us to bankrupt ourselves. He's given us a responsibility. If we have a family, given us a responsibility to feed, to provide for our family so that our families can eat. And he also has given us a calling and responsibility to give back to him. As you can see in this, in, in this story, Ahimelech doesn't, doesn't neglect his duties to God and in providing the bread of the presence to God. God comes first and foremost. But, but, God often, and as he did here, gives provision such that he allows us to spread his provision to be his agents to spread out his love to spread the good news of the gospel of what jesus has done for us and to do for others such as jesus god has provided for us that we have the means so also do we have the means to help those in need and so even if the person in need doesn't seem like they particularly deserve our help we are still called to treat them with compassion and through God's provision, trusting that just as God has provided enough, enough for us to help, not only to, to meet our own obligations, not only to meet the things that we need to do to provide for our family, to pay off those whom we have borrowed from, but he has also provided extra such that we could help in this time of need. So will he also provide when and if we would ever be found in that time of need. What do we do if we don't have any way to help, though? What if we do if maybe we don't have the means? Maybe this is a situation in which we don't have an avenue to help someone in need. What can we do then? Well, I'd like to go through the next section in our scripture. And I made the mistake of not bookmarking it, so I'm going to have to go find it real quick. 
But we're going to be starting in first 10, first Samuel chapter 21. This is the next part of David's journey after he gets the bread and the sword. Then David rose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to Ashish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Ashish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Aishas, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate and he let a spittle run down his beard. And then Aishas said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David is at his wit's end, clearly in, in, in every possible way. In fact, if we were to read one verse farther, which we'll, we'll start with next week, David is at the lowest point. He's all alone. His own nation has driven him and pursued him and, and tried to kill him and has drawn him into the hands of the enemy. And now he is at the mercy of this Ashish king of Gath. Now, let's think for a second. Ashish king of Gath. I'm not saying the name correctly, but who cares? David had killed his champion. He'd obliterated his army. And time after time after time again, every time this king had tried to go to battle against Israel, David had thoroughly beaten him. And now David has thrown himself at the mercy of this king. Now, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to pull out of this story as far as God's intervention in this, or as far as a response of something that we should do um, that we can see in this part of the story. This, this story is just sad. The desperation that David is in is in, almost incomprehensible. And yet, there is one observation I'd like for us to think about. Notice how this king of Gath, this king of the Philistines, this man who does not worship God, who has not seen his power, who is not following God, shows more mercy to David than God's own people showed to their anointed king who is in his time of need. How often, brothers and sisters in Christ, have we allowed the world who does not know God, who does not know the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf or accept it, to show more mercy to our neighbors in need than us. We who live our lives based on the fact that Jesus gave up literally everything. He gave up his position in the throne room of heaven. He gave up all creaturely and worldly comforts that he could have experienced on earth. He gave up his life even though we didn't deserve it. 
How often do we refuse to show mercy to those in need? I have one application for us that I've found to be incredibly challenging over the years and humbling. Uh, I've often been part of a conversation, uh, and it's a conversation that happens quite often, um, usually after an encounter with a homeless person who's asked us for money, but the group I'm in will debate whether or not we should be giving money to anyone who asks us, who comes up to the street and asks us. And, and oftentimes the, the end result of that conversation or the point that's brought up is that, well, I'm pretty sure or I've heard that if I give them money, they're more likely to just go use it and waste it on drugs and alcohol. So it's better for me not to give them anything because it's better for them in the long run. And, and, and maybe if that group is feeling particularly charitable and generous, they'd, they'll add on to that say, by saying, uh, and so instead of giving that money to them, I'll go give, we're, we're supposed to give it to an organization who has the resources and, um, and the environment to help the people in the way that they need to be helped. And a few years ago, a pastor gave this challenge to the church I was in. He said this, Why are we so concerned that a beggar might, might, key emphasis on might, waste our 5 10 15 $20 on drugs and alcohol when we ourselves go around wasting the sacrifice of Jesus, Christ our Lord, by sinning against our brothers and sisters every single day. Why do we put ourselves in the position to judge whether somebody else is worthy or not of getting help, of being shown mercy and grace on the potential that they may misuse it when we go around misusing the greatest gift that could ever be given? It's a really hard question. And I, I hope that as you ponder that, I don't know if there's a right answer. I think it's as much meant to challenge us as anything, but to apply that not just to the homeless person who might be on the street, but also to anyone else you might meet who's coming to you for need and aid. What do we do? How can we help someone when it doesn't seem like we have the resources or it doesn't, we don't have a way or an avenue to be able to help them? Well, <laughs> my main point right now, as I'm, I'm really trying to dig in and to challenge you on, is are you sure that you truly do not have anything to provide? Really consider that. Do you... Are you unable to help that person who's coming to you in need, or are you just simply not wanting to? If you're unable, then so be it. Definitely be in that situation. Those situations will, will come. In fact, there, there are a number of ways you, to name in which we are unable to help someone. The book of Job is all about someone who's in need, whom nobody can help. And David right here is in this position. He is in a position of desperate need. 
And we can't help him, right? He lived thousands of years ago. And so what do we do? Well, then we lament with them. In this story, David is, David, David is in such a state of desperation. He's stuck in a world full of people who want him dead because he follows the Lord. Both his fellow countrymen want him dead and the countries around him want him dead because he follows the Lord. And instead of sitting here and and reading through this and picking out all the different things that David did wrong in this passage and so trying to learn from it, or instead of judging what he's done in his desperation to stay alive, I invite you to join with me in praying and reading and singing and thinking about Psalm 56. The psalm that David wrote as he was, as it says here, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And in this lament, I invite you to lament, not just with David across time and space, but to lament with all of the other people in your life. Perhaps this is your own lament, who may feel like they're in the same position as David. Lamenting with Christians around the world who are being persecuted for following him. Lament with the kids, with our kids that we may know, that may go to our own schools, who when in their efforts to honor God and saying no to something that perhaps other kids are doing or that they're being pressured into doing, are subsequently bullied for it and ostracized. They feel like all of their peers turn against them because they're trying to follow God. And in some cases now even, sometimes even the teachers turning against them. Lamenting with those who work at our businesses, our local businesses, who who may have that opportunity and stand up against an immoral or unethical business practice, saying this is wrong, we should not do this. I've heard of many such examples myself, and in return, they get ostracized by co-workers. Their workplace becomes a figurative hell. Standing up, standing up with the women in many workplaces who encounter the boys club mentality. And who can often feel very alone in just wanting to be respected and dignified at their place of work. Standing up with those in America who are not a majority who are a minority, who so often feel like every time they step out of their house, they are under threat. Maybe there's someone else that comes to your mind, but I invite you to join with me in reading these words that David wrote when he is in this position at the end of his rope, feeling all alone, feeling trampled on in the court of the enemy. Be gracious to me, O God. For man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. 
When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen.